Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. Tonight, we're going to talk about the Green New Deal. You know, we're all familiar with the idea of a new deal. There's a sense of, well, of hope when we hear that phrase, you know, New Deal. The original New Deal pulled the U.S. out of the Great Depression and led to decades of American prosperity. That New Deal combined economic reforms with lots of new jobs in emerging sectors. And 90 years later, we're still reaping the benefits from our interstate highway systems to our monthly social security checks. Roosevelt's New Deal led to what is arguably the most prosperous era in U.S. history. Today, economists are envisioning a green New Deal that would combine Roosevelt's economic approach with today's emerging technologies. In Roosevelt's time, the emerging technologies was mass production of automobiles and an interstate highway system to drive them on. Today's emerging technologies are renewable energy and a nationwide electric grid to move that energy around. The idea of a Green New Deal first appeared in print in the New York Times opinion piece by Thomas Friedman. That was in 2007. A year later, a Green New Deal group had formed in Britain, and the United Nations had launched a global Green New Deal initiative designed to simultaneously boost the world economy and fight climate change by creating new jobs in green industries. In 2010, Howie Hawkins became the first U.S. politician to run on a Green New Deal platform. That was when he ran for governor of New York. And the Green Party presidential candidates have run on Green New Deal platforms in 2012, 2016, and 2020. In Europe, a proposal for a European Green Deal has been adopted by the European Council in 2019 and by the European Parliament in 2020. And in the US, the Green New Deal was introduced into the 2019 Congress. That was the 116th Congress. In the House by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, House Resolution 109, and in the Senate by Senator Ed Markey. These resolutions not only transition the US to 100% renewable energy, invest in electric cars and high-speed rail, but they also address, or at least seek to address poverty by aiming a lot of these improvements of vulnerable communities of poor and disadvantaged people. Many believe that a Green New Deal can provide millions of new jobs manufacturing wind turbines, solar panels, electric vehicles, building high-speed mass transit systems and smart electrical grids. Many believe that a Green New Deal can lead to a surge of economic growth and decades of renewed prosperity for Americans but many remain opposed to the massive spending required by any program the size of the New Deal, whether it's green or not. So where are we on a Green New Deal? We're joined on Zoom by Winston Apple, author and former member of the Democratic National Committee, Howie Hawkins, U.S. presidential candidate and co-founder of the Green Party, Wendell Chris King, retired Brigadier General, U.S. Army, and Dean Emeritus of the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. Stephen Melton, leader of the Kansas City Citizens Climate Lobby, and Jim Turner, board member of the Thomas Hart Benton Group of the Sierra Club and former chair of the Missouri State Sierra Club. Howie, you're the first U.S. politician to ever run on a Green New Deal platform, and that was for governor of New York. What led you to choose that platform? Well, the phrase, I'd actually been advocating the Greens adopted going back to 2000, but they were saying New Deal, that's too Democratic Party. But after the Green Party of England and Wales in, in uh, 2008 and the European Greens adopted it, I was able to persuade the Greens in New York that that should be the theme. And at that time, we're coming out of the Great Recession. So we used climate investments as a uh, way to get out of the Great Recession and put people back to work. 
And we actually led with the economic uh, issues. Um, and then, you know, that was picked up by Jill Stein, our presidential candidate in 2012 and 2016. It was really a signature issue of the Green Party in the 2010s. And then uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey picked it up after the midterms in 2018 and put a watered down version of our Green New Deal into Congress. They eliminated the ban on fracking and new fossil fuel infrastructure to phase out of nuclear power and uh, transferring resources, both money and brain power from military spending to this energy transformation we have to do and extended the deadline from 2030 to 2050. So where we are today is Biden just put out as part of his American jobs plan, climate action. He didn't really talk much about the climate emergency. There are some expenditures in there, but out of the 2.3 trillion, it's really about 100 billion a year. It's really a drop in the bucket compared to what the progressives, there's a Green New Deal network of groups like the Sierra Club and Sunrise that are pushing what they call a Thrive Agenda. And that ups it to $10 trillion over 10 years. And that compares to Bernie Sanders, who had a Green New Deal uh, that was $16.3 trillion over 10 years. He put it more through the public sector. Biden and uh, Thrive want to do it more with incentives for corporations, tax breaks, subsidies, contracts. And then my campaign, we, we budgeted out what it would take to transform not just power production, but manufacturing, agriculture, buildings, and transportation to zero emissions. And in a 10-year program, we got $27.5 trillion. So that's kind of the range of what we're talking about. And you mentioned the enormous cost. Without getting into detail, because I think this can be paid for over time, it'll cost more to do nothing because this climate emergency is more than the extreme weather and the heat waves we hear about in the headlines. It's really mass species extinctions, ecosystems collapse, which affects agriculture, which affects food production. We're looking at hundreds of millions of refugees as we head toward 2050, rising seas, conflicts over diminishing resources. It's a real emergency. Chris, I heard several things there that, that fall in line with you. I mean, as a former general military strategic alliances, we're hearing about refugees. We're hearing about the, um, the current bill wanting transfer money from the military to climate issues. I mean, where do you stand on all of those things? Well, I think it's got to be one comprehensive solution. Uh, bits and pieces are not going to work. Uh, I, I agree with Howie. It's an emergency. It, it's not something we're going to handle or manage within the processes that we have been using for years and years. Uh, I think the military has got to give up uh, something. But what the military really needs to focus on is how they reduce their footprint. Uh, that should be an initial thing. Uh, the United States Air Force is the largest user of, of transportation fuels in the United States, the one single largest. And overall, I, somebody put out an estimate. I was working with the NATO group and I didn't pick up the reference, but they referenced that the Department of Defense in the United States has a larger greenhouse gas footprint than 145 nations in the world. Uh, we need to think about those kinds of things in concert with how we uh, get the military to participate fully in what we need to do to meet 
the important greenhouse reduction goals that we've got to have to get to control temperatures by 2050 and getting to zero uh, carbon as fast as we can. So some of that money we may need to go to the military to reduce its footprint to, to do uh, a better job. And the other thing we have to do in the military is these are a new, new set of missions that we're going to be required to do to deal with massive numbers of refugees, numbers that we have never seen any place else in the world and how we're gonna support them with humanitarian ops because that's gonna be a military mission. There's nobody else that has the ability to do the logistical and the manpower to support to those scope of missions that are gonna come out of that, mainly out of the humanitarian crises. Uh, so there is a lot for the military to do. They're not ignoring it right now, but uh, they're going to have to be a full participant. But it's a whole of government solution. Uh, military is not in the league, but they got a big part to play in that. And just talking about, well, take the money from the military and and give it to something else. I don't think that's an adequate look at what the military has to do to be responsive to this national defense crisis that comes along with this uh huge emerging crisis that is climate change. And that's the way I view it. I'm not disagreeing with Howie. I'm just saying we've got a lot more to do and we have to have a, a more holistic and complete solution of what the military is going to be involved in to make uh, our climate change uh, initiative work. You know, money's been mentioned by both speakers now, both of my fellow panelists. And I think one thing, uh, that a lot of people don't understand, including a lot of people in Congress, is that when we went off the gold standard, which Richard Nixon took us off during his administration, uh, the nature of money fundamentally changed at that point. And we've seen a pretty good demonstration of that so far with the Biden administration's response to the pandemic and the economic consequences of the pandemic. Unlike state governments, local governments, businesses, and families and individuals, the federal government, any sovereign government with its own currency, and in, in the case of the United States, uh, the, the uh, article, well, the eighth, section eight of article one gives uh, Congress the power literally to create money. They use the phrase coin money, but now as we've seen, they can just send it out with electronic deposits or they can mail out checks. Uh, and there are some people in Washington who understand that and some who don't, but money's not the problem. It's a matter of political will. And uh, I think if we put it in the perspective, I know Al Gore got my attention with uh, an inconvenient truth, but what really got me actively involved, in fact, led to me getting actively involved in politics was a review that I read in the Kansas City Star in March of 2014 of Elizabeth Colbert's book, The Sixth Extinction. And the reviewer, uh, lightening the mood slightly with a bit of humor, pointed out that some scientists believe that the extinction of the human race may be the ultimate consequence of global warming and said that if that were to prove to be the case, it would be the first known example of, of mass suicide by an allegedly intelligent species. And I think we're gonna find out in the next few years, in the next few decades, how intelligent the human race may be or not. Jim? 
As we're speaking about money, uh, I think uh, the role of Secretary of the Treasury Yellen uh, is worth taking note of. And uh, uh, recently she gave a speech in which she referred to the Financial Stability Oversight Council, uh, which um, is uh, participated in by the, um, well, it was established by the Dodd-Frank Act. And this gives these agencies the power to compel banks to divest from fossil fuels. Um, so I think I see it as significant that she recently gave a speech that refers to this act. It shows that this is still something that's uh, in the deck of card in her hand of cards. And so I think it's important for us citizens to do all that we can to uh, to help help make it clear that the culture is supporting the Biden administration as it undertakes to do what needs to be done. Steve. I, I agree with uh, everything all the previous speakers have said. Um, Franklin Roosevelt was the giant president of the 20th century and his you know, new deal uh, saved this country. Um, you know, it's interesting, the New Deal was not one bill, but it was dozens of bills passed over a 10-year period. And so, you know, people that are thinking that there's going to be this one bill that's going to save us, you know, maybe you should look back in history and look at these bills for basically specific purposes that all led the country in the right direction. We cannot think of solutions as being isolated by countries. If we are virtuous in one country, but the Chinese, the Indians, and the Russians aren't, we're still going to lose the planet. This is why carbon pricing is so important, and this is why Janet Yellen is a big supporter of it. Is carbon pricing puts a price on carbon that's paid for, you know, by the fossil fuel companies, and the money goes wherever the money goes. What it's going to do is incentivize. It's going to incentivize people to go to alternative forms of energy. You know, we talk about money and, and how we talked about $27 trillion. The, the carbon fee and dividend bill that we're supporting that's in front of the Congress now, there's three bills in front of the Congress, would, would do almost much of that work, most of that work, which is $3 trillion. And that money would not be paid for by the treasury, by the federal government and raised out of tax dollars or borrowed because it's not gold. But this would be $3 trillion paid for by the fossil fuel industries. Um, and, then, and then, which would raise the cost of fossil fuels and incentivize alternative fuels. Now, why is pricing so important? Well, China's the 800 pound gorilla. The only way to de-link China's carbon policies from international power politics is to have an international price on carbon. And the United States and the European Union and Canada and so many nations are making steps to move in that direction. To have an international price, you have to have national prices that are coordinated. And that is what we should be looking at, is ways that we can solve this crisis through international market mechanisms so that one country cannot destroy all the good work that other countries are trying to do. 
Steve, doesn't China get most of its coal from itself? It, it does, and it burns 50% of the world's coal. And so the only way that you're going to stop that is by fees placed on Chinese exports, which take into account their carbon content. I think we have to keep in mind, and you know, I, I think these international controls are important, but we're talking about China emitting two, three times as much carbon as the U.S. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the U.S. is, what, 300 million people, and China is, has a population of billions of people. So per capita, Americans are the highest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. So it's fun to point fingers at China and India, and you know your points are valid, Stephen, and you know and those need to be addressed. But you know, let's not fail to look at ourselves because we do have the largest per capita carbon yeah. footprint going. I, I agree. I but you know what what the United Nations is saying, what the IPCC says is that the world as a whole needs to be carbon neutral by 2050. I totally and we agree. Have with you. much more aggressive near term targets. And, and, you know, I agree. Everybody's got to play. Everybody has got to play in this game. And, and maybe the best way to coordinate this is through an international price on carbon. I, I couldn't agree more. Chris? I agree. But uh, you remember me the last time I got on my tirade about coal because I hate coal. I got the National Geographic and Time came out this week, both of them talking about the amount of health effects that come off of coal. And I've known that for years because at one time I was a stack climber sampling army power plants, which were probably the dirtiest in the country at that time because they had no emission controls. And I realized all of the bad things that come out of a, uh, a stack when you burn coal. We need to find a way to handle that problem first. And somebody needs to recognize it as now clean air is the biggest killer. Lack of clean air is the biggest killer in the world. It used to be waterborne diseases, but air has passed that now. More than 7 million excess deaths per year because of that. We should find a way to link that. And nobody ever talks about that. They talk about greenhouse gases, but Right now, that's the kind of damage that coal's doing in the world. Mm -hmm. it, it is killing people pell-mell all over the world. And we have the ability to, to leverage that just as much as we do, uh, mm -hmm. even for the naysayers that don't agree with all the, under, or don't understand and don't agree with uh, the impacts of climate change now and in the future. This is the immediate 800-pound gorilla for, for human health. It's, it's just dirty air from coal. And to me, scientifically, uh, I'm an engineer, uh, coal's the easiest one in the world to fix. It really is a very simple issue to take coal off the line and, and put uh, renewable energies in its place with the technologies we have right now. Uh, and we have to find something that makes a progress, that shows significance, that shows impact, and we really need to, to have people going out and taking on coal industry in a, in a big way. And particularly now that we've changed presidents and uh, one that's not in love with coal like the previous president seemed to, seemed to talk about so much. But uh, uh, what do you all think about that? What's a solution to get at coal immediately if you think it's important? Chris, I think there is a solution at hand here in Kansas and Missouri. And that is the securitization statutes, which are 
going are, are, I think it has been approved by the legislature in Kansas and it looks likely that it will be approved by a, a Missouri legislature will approve its bill for securitization. And this will authorize these uh, uh, utilities ever like Evergy to, to issue bonds to help cover the cost of switching off coal and switching and uh, switching into more use of, um, of uh, wind and solar and uh, yes, probably some gas. Yeah, uh, we need to get off gas too. Uh, but but that is a basis for hope. Yes. Yeah, I agree that coal should be a top priority, which is why in all 1,200 words of that fact sheet, when Biden put out his plan on March 31st, there is nothing about shutting down coal. And right now, only about a third of the coal plants we have are scheduled to close by 2035. So we have a real problem there. And the Biden plan talks about putting more research and development into carbon capture and storage, which is a way of grandfathering in particularly gas, but coal. And at this point, I mean, it was just last week, the president of the United Mine Workers said, okay, we can see the handwriting on the wall. We're ready to get out of coal. You just got to provide us with a just transition yes. of income and benefits until we can get to comparable work. I mean, the time is now. And, you know, my perspective going to the money question when you look at that Biden plan, it looks like they limited what they would spend to the amount of money they could raise in those higher corporate taxes, which to Winston's point is backwards. <laughs> you should figure out how much you got to spend, you get done what you got to do, and then figure out how to pay for it over time. And they seem to want to raise the tax revenue first and then spend it rather than do what we need to do and then pay it back over time not just with taxes, but if we do some of this through the public sector, public power, public transit, public housing, maybe green machinery to get you know, our machine tool uh, industry back online so they can produce this new clean production, all that can bring in public revenues when those assets are sold or leased or you, 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 you get fares from public transit and so forth. So I think, you know, Winston's point is very much uh, an issue right now because they're going with this conservative, fiscally conservative pay-as-you-go approach, which basically limits what you can do unnecessarily. I think, you know, to that point, there's a whole school of economics now, modern monetary theory, that essentially is, is trying to educate people about the possibilities that come with going off the gold standard and, and adopting a fiat currency system. And what Howie was just saying to reinforce it and just basically say the same thing in a slightly different way, the federal government right now could, could put people to work doing whatever we want them to do, building solar panels and installing them, putting up uh, wind turbines, uh, building electric cars, subsidizing electric cars, and putting together the charging network we need. Uh, everyone talks about the impossibility of uh, upgrading our existing homes and buildings to be more energy efficient. And the reason they say that's impossible is there's just so many homes and whatever. The bottom line is, uh, 
we talked a couple times now about Franklin Roosevelt and the, the New Deal. In the State of the Union address that he gave in January of 1944, Roosevelt proposed an economic bill of rights. And the first right mentioned was the right to a job that pays enough to have a decent home, food on the table, the lights are on, et cetera. And right now the federal government could, if they wanted, put, put us to true full employment. We argue about a $15 minimum wage. If the government's offering everybody $15 an hour to do all of the types of jobs I just mentioned, then that becomes the de facto minimum wage. Uh, John Maynard Keynes in 1936 anticipated Roosevelt and probably led to his idea by saying that uh, unemployment and inequality of wealth were the two big problems we had to deal with and the, the major flaws in a capitalist system. And he proposed basically a hybrid economy with a public sector and a private sector and the ability of workers to move back and forth between the two at will. Buckminster Fuller talks about building something new instead of trying to dismantle the old. If we build enough wind turbines and solar panels uh, and do all the other things, uh, coal will go away. Nobody's going to buy coal if they can get renewable energy cheaper. And the federal government could make that happen. This is the climate iron. We're talking about the Green New Deal. Stephen? Yeah, um, just a little bit more about coal, because I agree, coal is the easy target. Coal is already unprofitable. I mean, Peabody Energy, who is the big coal miner who works all the mines up in Wyoming, uh, the, the coal is burned down here. It's unprofitable. It's losing share. It's it's losing money every single quarter, and it's in it's in a death spiral. Right now, there are only forty two thousand mine workers, coal miners, in the whole United States. Not one of them in Missouri, by the way. <laughs> and uh, you know, the only thing that's keeping coal afloat are regulators who insist on keeping uh, coal fired plants operable and uh, like in Missouri and they do it by prohibiting building other kinds of renewable energy. If we quit, um, if there were just any kind of uh, carbon price in, in the United States, coal would be gone in five years. I mean, that that's the reality of it. We're subsidizing it. We're keeping it afloat by governmental organizations such as the Public Services Commission. It's the, the already unprofitable and it will be more unprofitable coming forward. The ability of Congress to pass that is going to depend on the success of the Biden administration on getting its infrastructure bill through because that is what has been placed at the front of the line. And and um, so um, I, I, I think that uh, politics is the big consideration here. And, and for that reason, I, I have spent time looking at, at various things that the administration is doing because success on the administration's work is what's going to help pass the, uh, build its political power to pass the infrastructure bill, which then will equip us to 
have success in the 2022 elections, which can equip us to do even more. So I look, for example, at the uh, EPA, which has put methane, uh, uh, control of methane leaks as a very prominent task. And um, they say, the head of the EPA says that methane accounts for some 10% of US greenhouse gas emissions. Now, one good thing about that is that if we can limit methane emissions, then it will quickly have a impact on controlling the rise of Earth's temperature because methane is the most potent greenhouse gas. So I, I, I will just end by saying this point by saying that the EPA is working hard on that. They've got to pass new rules. It's not a quick, pro it's a months long process, but they are working on it. So that's a bit of good news. What, what's the current status of, of the quote Green New Deal in Congress right now? You know, House Resolution 109 and Senate Resolution 59. Are those still on the board or have we moved past those? I, I think they're just a political statement. I mean, it's the same except for one, they changed one number from 2030 to 2031. Otherwise the text is exactly the same as from two years ago, which Pelosi never let, let them vote on. McConnell let them vote on it, and all the Democrats voted present, except four, four voted with the Republicans, no. I think it's a statement uh, to Biden and Congress. Uh, accompanying it are particular pieces of legislation, a Green New Deal for how, public housing, a Green New Deal for the cities. There's an agricultural resilience bill. Uh, there's a new uh, Civilian Conservation Corps that AOC and I guess Markey just put in that is uh, 10 times bigger than the one Biden had in his plan. Those, I think, and I think what they're trying to do is those are negotiating points because this thing Biden put out there, you know, Congress is going to fight over that and the corporate lobbyists are going to be in there. I mean, it's going to be that sausage making for the next couple of months. So I think that's where the Green New Deal is. It's the progressives in Congress trying to get pieces and more money spent on it. And then the other side, you know, resisting for their various reasons. I think the other thing that needs to be kept in mind with the Green New Deal resolution is that it is a resolution. They right. could pass it tomorrow and all it does is say, we ought to do something about this. Doesn't do anything. Yeah, right. And so when you look at the severity of the crisis, I mentioned earlier, that the extinction of the human race is a possibility. Short of that, and, and Chris, and, and in this case, I think I should call you General King, I think you know from a military standpoint, the threat to of food shortages, water shortages, rivers drying up that run between nations. Uh, the report that you and I talked about before, uh, the abrupt climate change scenario and its implications for United States national security. And I know you're familiar with a great many other studies that have been done. We're looking at worst case scenario, the human race goes extinct. Short of that, failed states and ultimately maybe the collapse of civilization. And the bottom line comes down to, we know what we have to do. Uh, the six of us on this Zoom session are not the only ones in the United States that a majority of the voters know what we need to do individually and collectively, but the government has got to lead the way 
uh, all the rest of it that we can do is not going to be nearly enough, even just for the United States part in this. And so I don't know how we get between now and November of 2022, how we get enough voters to be fired up enough about this, that Democrat or Republican, they're going to vote you out of office if you're not ready to do something about this. And maybe vote Howie Hawkins in finally. <laughs> yeah. So let's set climate climate aside. I mean, obviously we're all here and we're concerned, and this is the climate hour, so we're concerned about climate issues. But couldn't we just look at this in terms of economic issues and new jobs? Isn't the whole Green New Deal, the original New Deal, now this deal, you know, wanting to create new jobs in these emergency renewable emerging renewable energy sectors? Isn't that good for everybody? Yeah, it is. And you know, I've been on these issues since the 60s, and it's always from the incumbent industries, you're going to cost jobs, jobs versus the environment. And we've had the data this whole time saying there's a lot more jobs in renewables than there is in fossil fuels and nuclear fuels. And uh, I think we're beginning to win that argument. I think Biden is smart to couch his plan as a jobs plan. I'm just disappointed how little climate policy and action there is in it. Now, a difficulty going into 2022 is that we've got uh, we've got states that are trying to squeeze down on the number of people who are who can vote, and so to do anything about the climate, we've got to protect democracy. It's all intertwined. We can't well, ignore any part of it. It, it's yeah. intertwined and it brings in the other component of the Green New Deal, which is addressing social justice. Who, who are, Jim, who are they trying to keep up away from the boat? The, the people who are suffering under the social justice uh, system that now operates with, with uh, coal, natural gas, oil, big, big companies getting the, the big rewards and who's paying the bill for the 7 million people that are dying. Uh, annually around the world. It's the people that live in the worst places and have the least ability to respond to that because of their their economic situation. So maybe that's just as happened a little bit in Georgia where some really, really smart people got together and brought those people out to the polls, showing them why they needed to go. Maybe that's where we have to go again. Those younger people, those people that believe in social justice that are out marching for those, they believe in climate change, but they need to understand that it's all one big package if, if they need to go out and do exactly what Winston said. The, the, the people who oppose uh, you know, what we're interested in doing are, are not monolithic. I mean, they try to be, but they aren't. And if you take Republican voters under 40 in their view of climate change, they're the same as Democratic voters under 40. You know, it, they, they're the ones who are raising the children to an uncertain future, and they want the government to do something about it. Now, the, the problem that we have with the American people is that they don't know what to do about it. You know, they know that their individual actions can be trumped <laughs> to use a word in a different meaning can be can be trumped by uh, somebody else. I mean, the day I went out and bought my Prius to save gasoline, you know, to save the world, and this is like in 2006, 
an office mate of mine over at CGSC, CGSC went and bought a big four-door pickup truck, you know? So everything I do can be canceled out. Anything you do in the United States can be canceled out 10 times over in China. You know, so we got to get away from this idea of we need to be virtuous individually on this and think about how we're going to coordinate activity collectively and not just in the United States, but around the world. And, and, and you know, the nice thing, we're talking about trillions of dollars here. Again, the nice thing about carbon pricing is it sends a signal all around the world because of the border adjustment taxes. So it acts everywhere. And the engine of the, of the uh, impetus is the money from fossil fuels, those companies, not the money from the treasury of the United States. So people who are interested in saying, well, I don't want to spend money on global warming. I'd rather spend it on uh, medicine. I'd rather spend it on, you know, these other very, very important programs are not seeing money taken out of the programs they favor by environmental programs. We can accomplish a lot by pricing carbon and forcing uh, the fossil fuel companies to pay for the, for the risk, for the damage that they're doing and the risk they're imposing on humanity. Don't we, I mean, it's hard to argue with creating new, clean, healthy jobs. Right. And, you know, if we're just focused on that, it's really hard to argue. It seems that the objections are spending trillions of dollars to do something new. Um, you know, what's the will? How, how do we develop the will to do that? And I'd hearken to COVID. I think somebody just mentioned COVID. We've just demonstrated that we as a nation can drop trillions of dollars to get us out of an emergency. And isn't this situation with climate kind of the same thing? I mean, if we can drop trillions of dollars to, to create vaccines and you know, stop an epidemic like this, don't we have the same will to drop trillions of dollars to, to end this climate crisis? Especially since those trillions of dollars could be spent and should be spent to put people to work on good paying union jobs. Exactly. I can tell one thing that gives me hope, and I do think that thus far, President Biden has demonstrated that he's aware that there are problems that need to be addressed. And while the filibuster is a sticking point, since everything we've been talking about involves money, it can all be done with reconciliation. So you don't even need to get rid of the filibuster to put a federal job guarantee in place uh, and through that job guarantee to really do everything that we could and should be doing. The limit is not money. The limit is workers and resources. And if the federal government makes a commitment to hire the workers to fully utilize our resources, uh, I mean, when the, when the continued existence of the human race is at stake, or the collapse of civilization is a threat, not to mention as Chris, General King mentioned earlier, the refugee crisis that we're seeing now is a drop in the bucket compared to what we're gonna see over the next 10 or 20 years as the effects of global warming continue to worsen. Well, I think we all know how big the problem is. It is a political problem to solve and we have to work on it uh, sector by sector at every opportunity. Now, one big sector that can be addressed is farmers, agriculture. And 
Um, I am pleased to see that the Ag Department is working on plans. They are accepting comments about setting up a carbon bank. The carbon bank would enable farmers to receive income for sequestering carbon through their better management of uh, soil and sequestering of carbon in the soil by things like carbon crops and so on. Um, and uh, so I, uh, once I get that carbon bank set up, uh, it looks like there's good potential for corporations being willing to buy those carbon credits. I'm not a great fan of carbon credits because it's a way to go on polluting, but I think you squeeze down on that pollution by other matters like making uh, coal, um, the ways we talked about reducing coal. The, the point is that these farmers, if they get enough income, they're going to realize that preserving their soil is in their interest. And they're going to realize that, that um, uh, pre preventing worse droughts is in their interest. Mm -hmm. And they're, they can be ready to, to vote for candidates who will help to put, put this Green New Deal elements of it one by one into place. Uh, are you talking about the Growing Climate Solutions Act? Is that yes. what you're talking about, Jim? Yes. Yeah, that, that's a bill that, that we support. And, and you're right. It's great to get the farmers on board. It's great to get the red states on board. You know, I think they don't realize if you, if you create a, a, a carbon market and farmers are going to get rewarded for sequestering carbon in the soil, that somebody's going to be paying carbon fees on the other end so those carbon markets work. So, you know, it's sort of a backdoor way to get carbon fees in. And, and I agree with the risk uh, that, you, that you mentioned. The risk is that we'll use the, this carbon sequestration in the soil as a way to keep on burning fossil fuels instead of a way to reward farmers and, uh, and continue to reduce fossil fuel and eliminate fossil fuel use. I mean, I mean what the scientists say, and, and <laughs> tell me if I'm wrong, uh, Dr. King, because you're, you're the scientist here, but I think what the IPCC says is that, you know, our task for the first half of this century is to quit burning fossil fuels. Our task for the second half of the century is to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. And uh, because That's it's part of it, way too high. The scary part is our tasks are twofold. One is to take carbon out of the air, and the other is we're still going to have to adapt uh, for the consequences that cannot be avoided based on what we've already done. And there are many ugly scenarios there, and there are no good scenarios about the kind of damage we're going to incur over the next uh 35 to 50 years based on what's already in the atmosphere. So carbon sequestration, if you could start it early, would certainly start abating some of that. But uh, my scientific solution is all of the above. Carbon right. taxing is good, but it's everything we can do all at once as quickly as we can bring it on board. Yeah. You know, you heard me about coal because that's an easy and fast way, but concurrently technology needs to be uh, developed and implemented for all aspects of what can what can help control this process, both by taking, uh, not producing it, 
reducing the uses of the, that causes to burn extra energy, everything of that has to be done at one time. That's why it's a whole of government solution, and we need a we need a a full scale plan, and not this set of res, uh, legislation or that set of legislation. Uh, the nice thing about the Green New Deal is it conceptually gave us higher end goals that gets to these things. And it, it like Winston pointed out, it doesn't change anything in and of itself. It's a resolution trying to establish our goals and objectives. Uh, and then a major plan has to be developed. And hopefully that's part of what Kerry's responsibility is because he over, he sits over the top of all of the, uh, departmental heads and all of the uh, the bits and pieces of government where all the stovepiping goes on and nobody wants to play well with one another. And uh, I wrote an article a couple of years ago and said they had to have something like that because trying to assign climate change to one department or another uh, doesn't work. It doesn't work. We got to have a new, not only do we have to have these new things, we have to go about doing the business in a new way. You know, Jim mentioned democracy earlier. If if 70 some percent of the people, I mean, everyone seemed amazed that Congress passed something with the uh, the COVID relief bill that had 70% support. This is another thing with 70% support and things with 70% support should be able to be passed by Congress. If not, you don't have a democracy. Well, that may be the problem, but Going back to the International Panel on Climate Change, saying we got to stop emissions by 2050 and then somehow draw them down. There's a lot of criticism of that because the drawdown part was uh, technologies that need to be developed. It's basically the way they put it. And natural carbon sequestration by reforestation, rebuilding wetlands, mangroves, and soil sequestration we can begin doing now. And you know what I think about the science is, if James Hansen is right that 350 parts per million is the limit of the safe zone, we could hit 421 parts per million on April 3rd. And what is built into the climate system now is heat as high as the middle Pliocene when sea levels are 80 feet higher and Temperatures are about seven degrees Fahrenheit higher. And where you got the momentum to get to 500 parts per million, then you got to go back to the middle Miocene when sea level was 100, what, 135 feet higher and uh, I think 14 degrees Fahrenheit higher. That's built into the climate system. I mean, I get really concerned when they put out these scenarios. Well, gradually cut down your emissions till 2050 and then do something to draw it out of the atmosphere. I think we got to start doing both. So another thing they talk about net zero, that the fossil fuel industry loves because then they can burn the carbon and then you offset it with, you know, the carbon bank or planting a tree, uh, carbon capture and storage. There's just a lot of questionable things in, in what they're talking about that's really not going to solve the problem. But I, I just... I keep coming back to the urgency. You know, I did the Green New Deal in 2010, based on Hansen and some of these other climate scientists, we were saying zero emissions by 2020. That was what we wanted New York, like Roosevelt did a little bit of the New Deal in New York as governor, 
before he went to president, we wanted New York to kind of set the example. And here we are a decade later, and we're just getting started, maybe. You know, the bottom line is the more we do and the sooner we do it, the less bad it's going to get. Right. That's right. it. And, and we and, can't do too much. Know, the, the, the system now does not reward people who act first on, on this system uh, on, to reduce climate because they incur the costs of, of the, the alternative energy and reap no personal rewards from it because if everybody else doesn't do the same thing, there's no reward for you, right? There's no reward for you if you cut your greenhouse gas emissions to zero and everybody else doesn't do a thing. You know, don't doubt the power of economic incentives to do the right thing. And the nice thing about economic incentives is that they spread across borders and so they go international. And that's what we're, we're, we want. We don't think carbon pricing is a silver bullet you know, I, I, I agree with, with uh, Dr. King, you know, and all of you. I mean, the worst thing we can do is safe side this thing and, and have regrets later on that we didn't do enough. You know, the least regrets way forward is to do everything we can possibly do. And then when we get to 2040, realize we're in a better situation than we thought we would be in. Um, where can we learn more? Winston, if people want to talk to you more about this, where can we send them? governmentbythepeople.org or winstonapple.net. Thank you, Winston. Howie, where can people reach you? HowieHawkins.us. Thank you. Stephen, Citizens Climate Lobby. Well, it's either citizensclimatelobby.org is the national organization. We have a local website, kcccl.org. Thank you. And Jim, where can people reach you? sierraclub.org slash Missouri. And I want to thank um, General King for joining us and for all of his insight. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.